Welcome to Silverfin Capital's FinSights podcast, hosted by Rich Piznoy, co-founder and principal of Silverfin Capital, lending expert, residential and commercial property owner, and sales and networking professional. This podcast is all about bringing people together for conversations, exploring current trends, insights, and innovations around real estate, finance, and life. Today, on the Silverfin Capital's FinSights podcast, we'll be diving into the captivating tale of Damon Gersh. Damon is not only a good friend, great family man, excellent guitar player, but he's quite an average golfer as well. <laughs> he is the former CEO of Maxon's Restorations, who he co-founded with his father back in 1989. For those of you that don't know Maxon's, it was no ordinary company. They specialize in disaster restoration services, tackling property damage caused by fire, water, mold, storms, and other calamities across the United States. But what set them apart was their unwavering commitment to excellence and customer satisfaction. Jump 32 years later, with countless awards and honors, Maxon's was acquired by First On-Site Property Restoration, where Damon had served as strategic advisor for the past few years. Join me as we unravel a bit about Damon and get some important business insights or finsights that will hopefully give you a competitive edge. Damon, we welcome you to the show. You look fantastic, like a young Scott Baio. Thank you. You look like an old Scott Baio. (laughs) He is very handsome now. I think he's better looking today. Well, I appreciate you being here. I want to talk a little bit about really many things. First, as you know, my company deals with both commercial and real estate financing. So having you on the podcast is not only great for our clients, but it's also great for current and future commercial business owners and property owners to learn about any potential unforeseen damage to their buildings, structures, et cetera. And quite honestly, who to call? I mean, I would know who to call, but there is so much more than just about rest being this being about restoration. It's about running a successful business, being a successful leader and your approach. So let's first get to know the man. Damon Gersh. So I know I mentioned a few things during the introduction, but tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how Maxon's came to be. Thanks, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> had a long commute over here. I had to walk two blocks. That's very far. I never thought I'd be the master disaster, but it was a business <laughs> that my dad kind of fell into in the 1950s, where he was doing services for the home out of department stores, home cleaning furniture restoration, just kind of home services for Macy's, Gimbals, and Corvettes for your older Corvettes, listeners. Corvettes. <laughs> I remember them at Mid-Island Mall. There you go. <laughs> and after that, an adjuster called him one day with a smoke damage in a bungalow, and he sent four guys one day. At that time, insurance companies were replacing these items. My father was able to clean them with his cleaning crews. And the adjuster said, where have you been all my life? And my dad said, where have you been all my life? That guy went back to his office overnight. My dad was getting calls from 50 insurance adjusters. When were you at the time? I was not born yet. You were not born yet. So this is real early on. Really early, after the war. So this was in the 1950s, early 50s. And he started an an industry where at the time, insurance adjusters didn't know who to call. As you said, a lot of people don't know what to do or who to call. And he consolidated all these restoration services under one roof whether it was cleaning, upholstering, redecorating, drying buildings, big commercial losses. It was one phone call and he just took care of the whole thing. So it made these adjusters job easier. I mean, it's pretty amazing when you think about it. A lot of people have started companies and listen, everybody makes wrong turns here and there, but going back so far, it's amazing how an idea can happen just so quickly. At the time, did he 
Obviously, stopped working at the other locations and 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 started well, business on his own. Well, they were getting or? a hefty concession fee, and his business of the disaster restoration so outgrew the home services that eventually, when the contract ended, he spun off. Okay, so now you're like 111 years old. Almost. So, so now, a few years later, <laughs> we go back to we we reach 1989. What happens? So my dad had grown the business and taken on a partner. My dad was 60 when I was born. So in 1989, okay. I was 21 and he was 81, which That's is awesome. amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, but he had taken on a partner not knowing what he was gonna do with the business. And it was a young guy from the industry and they got a little bit of success and the guy stopped working. Oh, all right. I've had enough. He thought he made I've it. I've had enough. I made it. I'm exactly. Done. So he'd call in the office. Hey, do I have any messages? It just That's not how you run a business. And my dad was in the office at six in the morning. He was one of those depression era. He understood what school. it meant to work. And exactly. Put, and put, yeah. Put so in. long story short, when I graduated college, I'd been doing working with them during the summers all through high school and college. I went into a bitter business divorce. So my dad sold out to his partner bought out his non-compete and my dad and I started Maxon's. My dad's name was Max and I'm the son. So that's how the name was born. I like that. Well, do you have brothers or sisters that wanted to be a part of this or not? Yeah, my brother was in the Navy at the time and my dad insisted to have the S at the end of the name, Maxon's. It was his vision. See, that's very cool. And your brother's not part of this now? Well, he was for a year and it really wasn't for him. This is a business that's very demanding, very difficult. You have to kind of be a jack of all trades, be willing to jump up in the middle of the night and be available and be professional. It's a lot that goes into the, doing this type yeah, of work. Yeah, a lot of high demand. So it's a very demanding company. Well, I know you have a family, so I mean, it does take a little bit of toll, I'm assuming, at least it did early on maybe, just because I know you're a workaholic. I know that you spend a lot of time doing things and you're always busy. So did it ever affect your family life? Well, I learned from my father what not to do. Because he was 24-7 business all the time. And I saw that I wanted to have a little bit more balanced life, be more of a family man. So he taught me a lot of what to do, and he taught me what not to do. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you finally had a relationship with your father when he turned 81. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I love that. I mean, that's pretty amazing. So you get you graduate college. Again, you had some history here, so it's not like you were a neophyte in this business. I've been working in the business yep, for five years For a long already. time. When we think about restoration, you talk about it, property owners mostly, you know, you see whether it's retail, you see whether it's multifamily, all different types of businesses. I look at somebody having you on who's, who's really helping somebody understand what they should look out for. If I go buy a building and I say, okay, I got to get insurance, I got to pay my taxes, I know I got to cut the grass if there's grass on the property and a couple of other things, but I don't always know what I have to worry about. And there's a lot to it. So somebody like yourself, are you on speed dial? We are. We have pre-loss agreements with a lot of larger property owners, retail chain stores, gyms, but a lot of real estate companies. Basically, anybody that owns or is responsible for a lot of real estate, they need to have us on call. Are you ever used as a consultant? Like, let's say, not just forget about somebody on call per se, but hey, you know, Damon, I'm going to be buying this building and I just really want to understand certain things. Maybe there's limits to what you know from a all-around, let's say, purchase of a, of a commercial property. But consulting with being, when somebody does an inspection on a building, they say, oh, your roof is going to last X amount of years. 
the heat is going to go. The, the giant air conditioning unit at the top is about to fall through. Are you guys, I know you're not doing inspections, but are you doing any sort of consultation with them about what potentially can happen and so that they can maybe get their insurance correct, make sure they're covered properly, things like that? Well, that borders really more on engineering reports and a purchase and those types of risks. But we did some pre-loss agreements called CPR agreements, crisis priority response. That gave some of our bigger clients, those with a million square feet or more, They could sign up with us in advance to get all the master services agreement, pricing, all that in place so that when they did have a loss, they just made the phone call and it was instantly contracted on demand. But as part of that agreement, we would go and do an inspection of their properties and walk around and really was more familiarizing ourselves with the layout, the egress, and maybe some of their key tenants and understanding what their risk factors were. And how often did you guys go in? Like, is there a certain, is it quarterly? It was intended to be quarterly. And part of it was to also maintain those relationships because a lot of times we could do this agreement at a corporate level, but really the guys who are on site, the super, the engineering guys, they're the ones who get the call in the middle of the night when the sprinkler pipe bursts or there's a fire in a unit. So sometimes there's a disconnect. They don't know that there's a master services agreement at five levels above them. So that was an opportunity to build those relationships and help them understand that they had a resource, put us in their phone. And we'd also help them be prepared to have other things on either speed dial. We had a kind of emergency checklist and we'd have an emergency contact list. And also something that they wouldn't keep in their office because sometimes buildings catch fire or flood or whatever the case may be. Or their shut off access is is stopped by the fire department. So there we'd have them a sheet where they can keep the elevator company, electricians, the plumbers, all these emergency services that they may need in the middle of the night. It's nice you have all the ancillary or related businesses so that people feel a little bit more secure. I got a flood in my house. So I saw what remediation looked like. I can't even imagine what it is or the difficulty on something really on a large scale. Of course, you can because you've dealt with that. (laughs) Once or twice. (laughs) Once or twice. So at the time, did Maxons have relationships with insurance companies or other firms that you were their go-to guy or their go-to company, excuse me, almost on call compared to somebody else? Or how do you establish those relationships? They're different by different verticals that we did business with. So insurance companies tend to have vendor programs. You're either on a rotation, but generally there's agreed pricing in advance and they pretty much extract most favored nation pricing. You get 10% on your dollar. Whatever it is. So in return for volume. But as the years have gone on, as I think everybody knows, insurance companies are just trying to limit what they call severity, which is their claim payout. Now, especially on large commercial losses, they'll hire a third party administrator to actually come in there and review the claims with the sole purpose to chisel and Everything cut down. the amount it's like, it's that like they're a, paying it's out. It's like an adjuster coming and look at your car. Yeah, but this is actually in addition to the adjuster. Yes. So if, let's say you someone has damage, flood damage, does the adjuster meet the property owner and somebody like yourself prior or are they going by themselves? They say, hey, Damon, looks like there's could be millions of dollars worth of damage here. What are your thoughts? Give us an estimate, almost like the car damage report that I was saying. It's all over the map. A lot of times we're usually there before an adjuster is on site. Right. So somebody calls us, they have a fire in a high rise building in Manhattan. They need somebody there immediately to dry the building out, start cleaning, deodorizing, you know, multi floors, bringing equipment, all that stuff. So 
on the real estate side, they just need to be put back in business and get the rents rolling again and avoid lawsuits. And they'll worry about the insurance deal. And then typically it takes maybe a few days for the adjuster to get out there. And then what we try to do is do kind of like a triage, do the important stuff, stabilize the building, get the obvious stuff. And then what we found the best practice is it's always better to ask permission, not forgiveness. It's better to walk through the loss with the adjuster. And this goes for property owners as well. Don't just make big decisions without including the adjuster, because it's just going to make the settlement of your claim much more difficult. The collection of those funds way more difficult. You want to get them to sign off on these things, let you know you have coverage, that you have ample coverage, and that they are agreeing to those things. And this way you avoid fights and litigation that otherwise could be avoided. Yeah, this way they even get to see it before it's repaired. Yeah, exactly. But sometimes they wouldn't send people out for weeks and, you know, right. you're and trying business, to get somebody has to there. Keep going. I'm with you. I mean, I think that's good advice. I know that you did a lot of commercial stuff. Did you start doing residential? Do you still do it? Or does Max and the First Onsite still do that? Or you kind of moved away from it? I'd say that it's always been a mix because some of the B2B clients that we did business with, like, let's say a large insurance broker, they insure commercial and residential. Need you to go out to Port Washington. Exactly. So right. we'd much rather handle large commercial losses. They're less emotional. You're dealing with business people. <laughs> they tend to be larger. When you do a loss in somebody's home, it becomes a whole emotional thing and a personal thing. And it's a little more complicated. It takes almost the same effort to do a $10,000 residential loss as it is to do a $100,000 commercial did loss. Did you guys own your equipment or... Was it leased or? We transitioned over the years. As we grew, we realized we needed to own our own equipment. So we use subcontractors extensively and we used to let them bring their equipment. But we found that the equipment is what you leave behind after the labor leaves, the drying equipment, the air filters, the blowers. And we always wanted to maintain a very high standard and you couldn't bring a banged up piece of equipment that came off another job that smells like a fire. So we brought that in-house. We have a warehouse in Maspeth, Queens that we solely manages, maintains, and distributes equipment on jobs. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, first of all, you don't want the equipment to smell up the property that you're trying to clean. Is this funny? Has there been any sort of nasty, horrible, and I'm talking just vile things that you've come across? I'm sure there has, but is there some things that stick out in your mind? Well, on some level, everything we do is kind of nasty and vile. (laughs) I know what you're talking about. They aren't too sexy. We don't love to talk about them, but certainly for a long time, we handled bio-recovery losses in-house. Those are a property manager gets a call that there's a smell coming out of an apartment and there's somebody passed away, either suicide or overdose or an elderly person. So those, you could have some disgusting evidence that comes through the ceiling, for instance. Well, you know, I never really thought about that. Listen, obviously we don't want anybody to die. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it's like you look up at the ceiling, what's that red spot? <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, or like inside a major hotel that has a giant atrium and it's a popular place for people to jump off of. So those, and then we've had some places where somebody had a, a winter house in Florida and they left their house unattended and unmaintained and they had a leak. So six months of of cooling and drying, you couldn't even open the front door. There's like a foot thick of mold on everything. Basically, the house has to be gutted or even demolished in those cases. Yeah, I remember I was watching a a TV show. It was this 
criminal case files and it turns out that it wasn't a criminal. It was, it turns out there was moisture in this house that caused mold everywhere. Everybody was getting sick and they thought that it was some sort of poison. Right. And some, but the whole house, it was like a, some huge house and they had to knock the entire house down. I had one that had to be knocked down. It was a woman who was a self-styled animal rescue. It was up in New Rochelle. Self-styled. Self-styled. What is that? I don't know what that means. Meaning she <laughs> took it upon herself to <laughs> adopt stray cats, dogs, all kinds of animals. I know people like that. <laughs> I, you're kind of like a stray I'm dog. I'm very much that. I have 17 cats upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> so, and this was in August. I remember it was in the summer and I was in the field and I went there. She had a puffback, which is nothing having to do with a humpback. It's her oil burner, kicked soot all over the house. This is something that people who've had them, they know what it is. Convert to gas if you don't want to have that. Convert immediately, immediately. <laughs> and I'm trying to find the address and I could find it because I smelled it from the car. Oh my, it was that bad. It was that bad. And I had to go in there and it was the most horrible smell I ever smelled. And I had to go and tell the insurance company, there's nothing worth restoring here. Everything is a total loss. There were cats living inside the couches and- and was a woman still living there? She was still living there. It just was the horrible. Health and this, I, mean, was, just I mean, it was beyond what the can't actual even... smoke, but you can't clean the smoke damage without cleaning. This the is not crap a place you're everything. removing two feet of sheetrock. No. You so, know, in know. that case, the adjuster just wrote her a check and she didn't want people in her house. We've done a lot of Collier's mansions where people are hoarders. We've seen all kinds of stuff like that. That's interesting. I mean, it probably doesn't move you that much anymore if you, when you see something like that at this point, you kind of get accustomed to it to some degree. I mean, somebody has to be the eye of the storm on that's, these things. Somebody you. has to be you the You look like guy. you would be the point man. I am like a hurricane. I would put you on the point. I would. I'd um, sit back. You can go on point. <laughs> <laughs> Evidently, obviously, you're focusing now more on commercial. You and I had talked briefly at times about Hurricane Sandy and 9-11. And I guess earlier, 9-11, I think, was a big moment for your business how did that exactly change things? First of all, it was an unprecedented type of disaster. It was horrible. It and... was the worst day of probably all of our lives. And I took it personally because they were aiming at New York. Were you in the city at the time? I was driving into the office. I made it to the Midtown Tunnel when they shut the tunnel. So we watched the towers fall from Queens. I was there. I was in the city. But I remember, obviously it was horrible, but some things that stick with me to this day is everybody felt like they wanted to do something to help the lines to give blood and giving drinks drinks to, to, the, to the workers to the worker yeah, everybody, everybody and i felt in a fortunate position that we could actually do something that we could help the city get back on its feet that we had the unique skills to be able to handle this disaster because even though it was an unprecedented type of loss which was this particulate matter which was glass and concrete and asbestos asbestos and files and desks and it was an unprecedented type of residue but we know how to deal with particulate matter we have hepa vacuum cleaners and hepa air cleaners we know how to employ personal protective equipment tyvek suits and all this type of stuff that normal cleaning companies don't know how to do so i felt like we were the right company in the right place to help people do it right so that they didn't have long-term health issues so we actually ramped up to have over 1,600 people working in Lower Manhattan. We did over 3,000 apartments. Our clients owned a lot of those buildings in Battery Park City. And then we did about 50 office buildings and countless restaurants, small businesses. But what I remember fondly on some level was the people, when we would come south of Canal Street, holding signs saying, thank you. And the store owners just opening the stores, giving our workers just 
free food. And it was just the spirit of unity that I wish that we kept, but that, Unfortunately, that's what it doesn't last long, me. but I mean, that's amazing. I mean, I remember being down there and you felt community, you felt yeah. things like that. You know, everybody that I knew wanted to help, but we didn't have the opportunity, obviously, that you were able to provide, which I think is incredible. I mean, that's a credit to you. I mean, your company, everything, family, workers, everybody. I think that's terrific. And the one legacy from that, you asked how it changed our company, besides taking us to the next level. I mean, they did an international CNN feature report on us. So my friend said that you're now over the radar, <laughs> right? That we used right. to run a business. We were kind of under the radar. It put our industry above the radar and our company above the radar. And we were kind of the representatives for our industry on a international level. But I'll say another positive thing is it showed our team that we rose to the occasion and could handle that. So yeah, anything, the ability to take care anything of anything that came that up came after about. that, any challenging situation, somebody says, oh, I don't know if we could do that. We'd look at them and say, really? <laughs> <laughs> The fact that you did that is an incredible feat in, in, in itself. And then the coordination of everybody that had to be put together, the companies, the people, the departments, I think that's also super impressive. And then now comes Sandy. It's a little different, I guess, because- Very different. We go from maybe to a degree it's dry to wet in the city. And then if outside the city, I don't know if you did this stuff where you had a lot of trees and debris. And I know that there are companies like, I don't even know how to pronounce it right, like a Splendy. I don't know tree if you- Tree removal if, companies. Tree removal companies. That, I don't know if you coordinate with them as well and, and who kind of takes the leads on this, but you already prepared. Am I correct in saying well, that or is it's it funny. just because it was so different? It's so different. So a couple of things. With 9-11, it was a dry dust and people vacated the whole area around Ground Zero. So there was no rush to get these places cleaned up. So we could put somebody on the schedule. Okay, well, we're finishing 50 right, we'll battery parks. Right, we'll we'll be there in two weeks. No one was living there. Nothing is going to yeah. get worse. But with Sandy, standing water, people freak out. Once it's underwater, it's not going to get any worse in a day or two. But people have a sense of urgency that that water needs to get out now. And the other thing that happened is with 9-11, the damage was pretty confined to south of Canal Street. Whereas with Sandy, we had the whole South Shore of Long Island, all the South Shore of Brooklyn, or the whole Southern perimeter of Manhattan from 42nd Street on the east side to the west side, New Jersey. So the damage was way more widespread, way more people impacted. And underneath as well. I mean, even more widespread to your point. Exactly. There just was not enough resources to meet the demand. Because if you have a thousand buildings that have 20 feet of water in them, there's only so many pumps and there's only so many people and so many equipment and so much. That was very stressful because we have obviously spent years and years developing these important relationships with big real estate companies. And everybody's like, you need to be here you're now. now. Be here now, be here now. You're if, like, you, ah. if you're not here for me now, then why do we have a relationship with you? And so you have to really make a choice. <laughs> Who are you going to piss off? There's no win. It's a no-win no situation. And, you know, I think in hindsight, people understood later. But when you're in the midst of it and your tenants are screaming and you have three floors of parking garages under 40 feet of water and nobody can get to you, the people who are getting the phone calls, those property managers, those owners, they're the ones who are under tremendous pressure. And unfortunately, it's just you couldn't have enough supply to meet that demand. As a layman, if you will, like I lived in the city, my car was parked in the garage underneath my building. It was flooded and lost. Yeah. And I'm like, how are they clearing out this five feet of water that's in here, you know, and dealing with that? And 
And then you put on top of that one, a lot of building systems were located on the lower floors of buildings. So, <laughs> so you couldn't even... Electrical panels, elevator circuitry, all these major systems were flooded by salt water. So then there was a demand to try to get all those equipment. You couldn't manufacture all those switches and all that electrical gear. So it was a long-term problem. But in addition to that, the mold for the people that didn't hire us or companies oh. like us that know how to properly dry and monitor and do demo strategically and all that. I knew that this was going to be a long-term mold situation that would unfold over the next year to two years as people discovered areas that they didn't handle properly. I mean, can you get to everything anyway? It's so hard. It's so difficult. Right? Well, that was There's the other nooks thing. Nooks and crannies. And On those area-wide events, as we call them, disasters, regional disasters, what happens is a lot of companies around the country that swoop in, like these carpetbaggers, if you will, to right. come oh, in. Thank you to uh, John's restoration that flew in from Colorado. Exactly. And so they come in there opportunistically and they're kind of in for a short period. Then they're off to the next tornado or hurricane yeah. or something. The problem with those is they don't always do it right. They don't necessarily have the right insurance or right training or certification. And God forbid there's a problem with their work. Good luck right. getting them back. And then look, the heart's in the right place, I think, to a degree, but it's more of, if the know-how's not there, it doesn't make a difference. Exactly. I can't even imagine the stress. Yeah, that, that was the most stressful situation, I think, because in addition to that, we were running power for buildings. Like we were doing all of Peter Cooper Village and they had like 22 buildings that were underwater and we had to run the power to those buildings. So we had generators running the buildings because they have power equipment and we had to have our equipment our drying equipment and pumps all running on electrical power. And if you remember, gasoline. Right, you remember that? There was, you oh, I remember on, it. on lines. I remember, I think I watched The Walking Dead. I think I watched eight seasons. While you're on. <laughs> I watched eight seasons of The Walking Dead. Well, I was, I was The line. Walking Dead during that because I had uh, all this equipment, all these generators running yeah. on gasoline, running all over oh my God. a hundred mile radius and we're running out of gas. You're running out of gas. And yeah, in fact, you could buy gas on Craigslist. Someone will go pick it up for yeah. you and drop it off. I mean, it's crazy. So all these things, what was interesting about it, now that I'm not under the stress of those situations anymore, is what I loved about the business is it's a very creative business. You have to problem solve and innovate on the fly. Like with 9-11, the rules of engagement change every day. Access change every day. You have to deal with so many stakeholders. Same with Sandy. It's like it challenges everything you have as to be a problem solver, think on your feet, come up with innovative solutions and solve problems for the people who are counting on you. It's a great way to put it. When, you, when we talk about things like that, something that big and grand, it kind of leads me to my next thought, my next question, which is we talk about industries that have associations. And the reason why I say it's connected, it would be nice to be able to talk to people in the same industry, obviously have good relationships, even share work to a degree. But do you guys have some industry associations that you guys all participate in or hopefully participate in that work for you guys? There are two main industry associations for our industry. One is RIA, the Restoration Industry Association. They're the certifying body. They do training, continuing education. They have an annual convention and all types of- They have a comedian that comes down. Yeah, once in a while. He's not that funny though. <laughs> kind of like you. Kind of like me. I'm hilarious, by the way. Yeah, the glasses are hilarious. I love those. Like this? On the edge so, of your nose. What are you talking about? I'm not wearing glasses. So that's one. And another one is IICRC, Independent Institution of Cleaning and Restoration. 
it's accrediting body. So people that do show up and do this work, they actually have been trained and know how to, what the right protocol. But what I did, one of the things that I learned is the power of relationships and association. So those are kind of the typical associations that you'd think of. But one thing that I realized is that we increasingly over the last 10, 15 years had to compete with national restoration companies. So much larger companies. Okay, so Maxins, pardon me, I don't mean yeah. to cut you off, but Maxins is more of in the Northeast. It was a regional, New York, a, a, or about like, a 200 mile radius from Midtown Manhattan. So I see. New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, upstate New York. You get the call that says, hey, Damien, can you help me in Oklahoma? We didn't really have a resource, but we've been in that industry so long. I know people, I know who the good players are in the industry, the regional players. But one thing I decided to do to compete with the national companies, because we could have a relationship with, a, let's say, a Walmart or something, but they couldn't even get into a conversation with us because they don't want to deal with 15 regional companies. They want, one as, as they said company. it, they want one throat to choke. <laughs> that, they that want the one, one number to call. They yeah. want one insurance, one contract, all this stuff. So I started an industry affiliation group called Restoration Affiliates, and I handpicked some of the leading regional companies, really substantial multi-million dollar companies with multiple locations, had strong roots in their markets. And we teamed together. And, and you was, covered the continental United and States. And we covered the continental United States. And first of all, it was a strategic marketing platform. So now if there was a big national show, we could co-market and buy a big booth together rather than Absolutely. get 10 small booths. And in addition, we, we did a lot of referral work. So we had a referral program and and we shared best practices. So we kind of lifted while we climbed. And it was a great group that still exists. But unfortunately, when I was sold or bought by one of the big national companies, yep. I was kicked, you out. kicked out of the organization that <laughs> I founded. It. But I have great relationships with those people. They're great owners, and I salute their entrepreneurship. I think that's terrific. First of all, it helps everybody. It helps all the region. It's a win-win. Yeah. It's, it really is terrific. That's great. I mean, the nationals don't love that. But at that well, time- they're they're, they're in know, a different business. Different business. So- Let's talk about the restoration business now. You turn on the news, you hear climate change. Whether there is or isn't is another discussion, but we see bad weather these days, more tornadoes, hurricanes. It doesn't rain anymore, it just pours. So one would say, oh, that's in one sense, it's good for business. Is that seem to be the case these days or you know, from what you see or not? The funny thing is, is that when I see Every day you can have a flood. Every day a pipe can break. Every day there could be a fire, unfortunately. You know, you don't want things like that to happen. But weather does have an impact. And we talk about, look in Canada, you have the forest fires. Now, this is not necessarily directly linked to restoration, but when houses are burning, when other properties are burning and things like that, and California fire, all of this has an effect. Now, we don't want to see it happen, but from a financial business standpoint, does that help the business? Unfortunately, it does. What's bad for humanity is good for the property restoration industry. Certainly more types of property loss is what the industry is meant to serve. And I think you hit it on the head that really it's kind of a numbers game. Like there's always going to be a certain amount of fires and floods. The insurance companies have actuarial tables and that's how they set their premiums. And I'll just say that when they have these big area-wide events or disasters that cost them billions of dollars, everybody's premiums go up to pay for it they're not paying out of pocket, they get it. And you'll find that the next year when they don't have a giant multi-billion dollar disaster, the premiums really never come down. Well, it's like taxes. Right. So <laughs> yeah. 
the interesting thing about it is it's good for the industry if you're in restoration on some level, but it's not. So I was just having breakfast today with somebody that worked for me in the past for 20 plus years. And he was talking to somebody who responded to those storms, the hurricane that went up the West Coast of Florida. And he was saying what a horrible experience it was. Besides being uncomfortable and trying to put up teams of people and there's no hotels and food and water. And it's very difficult to work in those circumstances. But the big national companies, they're geared towards that with command centers and tractor trailers and thousands of pieces of equipment and resources of labor. But one of the issues is, is most of those weather-related losses are not insurance-covered losses, or they're highly limited in what they Act will of cover. Gods. Groundwater coverage. Hurricanes typically are if it's wind and wind-driven water. But like flooding is not a covered loss. And that turns out to be, in some of these instances, one of the most widespread and most destructive forces. Well, look at Florida now. You may not be aware of this, but we see this is that a lot of the big insurance companies are pulling out of Florida. I'm very aware of it. You wonder what's going to happen with that, especially now you have, even going in, that's from the weather, and then you have some of the old buildings that there's water damage that's corroding the concrete. Right. As you know, you know we, yeah, that we collapse, saw that we collapse, saw. collapses. And insurance companies do not insure maintenance. They do not insure chronic. It always has to be a sudden event. They do not insure anything like that. Now, there may be liability settlement yeah, on the other side, else. but not on the property side. So in the same vein, we just went through COVID and people stayed home, stayed out of the office. Now you have a lot of empty offices. You got people working from home. On the same side of it, does that hurt your business? There are companies walking away from buildings. Look at oh, San Francisco and you see a lot of just in general, just office buildings under, being under the water, yeah. they're not rented. How does that impact the industry? Well, it's kind of a mixed bag. A lot of losses are caused by people. <laughs> yeah, I've seen multi-floor high-rise building fires caused by a halogen lamp being knocked over. I've seen them by a coffee maker left on in a law firm that caused 25 floors of smoke damage in a high-rise. So on some level, it helps because the human element of people screwing up, leaving toilets running, whatever that may be, is gone. However, on the other side, it's not good because if there is a non-human related thing, a pipe burst, a mold situation. Usually when people are there, they can spot they can it. Around, they'll say, hey, guess what? Hey, my ceiling's leaking. Or hey, there's mold growing here. We need somebody to come check sure. it out. And if that turns like this situation I told you before with the people who are in Florida, six months they had mold growing. So you could take something that would necessarily be a, let's say a $5,000 mold cleanup. And now you come in <laughs> and six <laughs> now months later, <laughs> now it's a multi-million dollar multi-floor high-rise mold situation that goes into the air systems and behind the building cavities and have to be demoed. So it's kind of a mixed bag. But in general, I think empty property is not good for the properties and it's not good for the industry. Do you think people should have all these HEPA filters installed and all those things? Besides the fact for the, you know, we talk about COVID and things like that, but just even from the from a mold standpoint and some other things that could cause damage, yeah, you know, I every think building a, should be I think, really up to date. I think people are way more cognizant of these things now. There's a lot of consumer products that are kind of meaningless. We use ozone in our business, but I don't think it really is effective in the way people think it is. But I think HEPA filtration is one of those things that it can't hurt because I think it removes particulate matter from the air, and it does. And you want to make sure you have a good HEPA filter unit, and that could help with pollen if you have allergies. It could help recently in 
our part of the country, you've had smoke particles from those from Canadian, Canadian wildfires. wildfires. Yeah. Even though you smell it more outside and you don't smell it in your house, there's still particulate. Our houses are not airtight. There is particulate. Is, I, I, I have a zipper around my house. I saw the vinyl <laughs> wrapping. <laughs> I have a big saran wrap. Am I going to be able to leave here or am I That's staying in your basement forever? That's very So funny. I think, especially if you're sensitive, some people are more sensitive to particles, to pollen, to smoke, to there's dust that's in the air. If you're sensitive to those things, it can't hurt. No, that makes a lot of sense. So look, you've been a very successful CEO, business owner. And I do want to talk a little bit about leading a company. What I mean by leading, being a good head of that company. And it doesn't matter if it's a big company or small company. And we've known each other for a little while, but I've heard you say a few things like businesses need to be unique and heads of companies need to figure out ways of differentiating themselves from others in the same field. It's not always easy to figure out, especially from a young company. So how do you suggest they go about learning how to think outside the box or strategize in the proper way? It's very important to differentiate yourself, but in a way that's meaningful to your customers. Because a lot of companies differentiate themselves, but if the customer doesn't care, if it's not a meaningful differentiation, then you're barking up the wrong tree. We all wear white shirts today. I mean, right, exactly. Who cares? Anything. Right. So I think you have to really know your market, understand who your customer is, and reverse engineer from that. At the same time, you have to know who you are. You can't pretend to be something you're not because it's going to come out. So I think knowing what you bring to the table, what your unique perspective or value add that you bring. So you may be the cheapest in the industry. If that's what the customers that you want to attract that they're looking for, then differentiate yourself in we being call, the cheapest. I'm sorry, we call them inexpensive. We're the most inexpensive in the industry. Sorry, but yes. yes. So um, and in the same way, if you're the best at customer service, then you have to be the customer service company. If you're the quality firm, you know, the firm, you call them, you never have to worry about it. We do it right. We do it the first. So whatever those things, I consider those brand anchors. So for us, it was speed, credibility, and expertise were our brand anchors. And we did a lot of offsite work with the leadership team to really suss out because you need the leaders and executives of a company need to take time away from the business. Somebody has to work on the business while other people are working in the business. I always find that a lot of executives, most companies start because they were successful at a company as a worker and they learn the industry and they develop contacts and they say, hey, I could do this for myself. And they wind up being what's called a technician. They're really good at doing the job. And that will take you to one level. But that is also the thing that will prevent you from getting to the next level because the only way you grow is by being busier. There's only so many hours in the day so many days in a week and all that. And what happens is if you do that nonstop without changing how you're doing things, whether it be hiring people or building systems so you don't have to do duplicate work, all those things, I always say that busyness is the enemy of effectiveness. So let me think about that. Busyness is the enemy of effectiveness. So let me elaborate on this for me. Busyness, you could be busy. Yeah, you know, busy. So and it's great, okay. being busy great being busy for a little while but you just have to figure out how to manage time effectively so that you can continue to generate more business. And I understand that a lot of business owners, I mean, I grew my business so that I could truly be an executive, a visionary, a strategic thinker. And I found that it was my responsibility and I had the unique ability in my company to be able to imagine the future, 
read the industry, see these more big picture things. If you're working in the day-to-day and answering emails and the phone calls and people coming into your office with problems, you will never have that clarity, the space to think about your company in a bigger way and think about where you have to navigate. A good analogy is you're kayaking down a rushing river. You could do that forever and you may go over a waterfall. Sometimes you need to pull over to the side of the bank, pull your canoe up, take the map out and say, where are we going? What's the goal? What are we trying to accomplish here? And somebody needs to be responsible for that. But you need people who also make the trains run on time, who do the work, who are working in the business, and they have to know what to do. So the leader's job, one book that I would highly recommend to business owners, one of the first business books I read when I started in my 20s was The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. And this whole idea that the entrepreneur's job is to work on the business, not in the business. I get it. And in fact, folks, before we even, Damon and I talked about this, we did touch base on that book. And you had mentioned that it's an interesting book because when somebody starts a company and has the technical know-how, at least what I read it's about, because I did not read the book, doesn't necessarily mean they know how to run the business or expand the business, grow the business, Or grow systems and processes that it makes it run itself. Correct. What I guess you were saying previously about, look, there's a lot of monotony in a day. And sometimes leadership, and it doesn't matter what level, essentially, of leadership, can't just always be tied down with mundane, busy work. You can't be. Otherwise, the business is going to stagnate. Or you are subject to the whims of fate, of you're busy one day, you're not busy the next day. You have a good quarter, you have a bad quarter. You're the victim of what's happening. And leaders need to create the future. Correct. You want to be, see what you can grow. I like what you said. You don't want to be the victim of fate, so to speak. You know, you're in control of your own destiny. Everybody has an influence on how things go. We all know you can't control what's going to happen. But if you clarify who you want to be when you grow up, like in five years, what do we want to be? I find that those strategic or visionary exercises, I found they aren't just frou-frou things that you should do because, hey, it says in the book, you should have mission, vision, values, and all those things. When I was younger, I thought that that was just something you kind of had to do for your website. But really, as I grew the business and really became a better leader, those things are super important because it tells your team, what are we going for? Who are we trying to be? What's important to us? What do we emphasize? What do we value? And I found that clarifying a vision, it becomes like a magnet. When you articulate it to your team, they understand and they live into that vision. It's almost like a magical thing. But without that vision, people are just pushing each day and it's just really mundane, busy work. And it's easy to burn out and it's easy for people to feel like they just have a job. Whereas the other way, you want people to feel like they're part of something and they're working towards some purposeful thing. And that leads to retention and employee satisfaction and people which feeling so like important. they're part of something. Yeah, which is so important. I have a few questions that I've written down and I want to jump one because the last thought about that with regard to the people that you work with, your employees, my one thought is, is it a the leader's job to motivate people or should they already have the motivation to succeed? I think just based on what you said just there, when you have a particular goal in mind, as a company, I think it helps the motivation, but I'm just curious your thoughts on that. I always said that I can't teach certain things. So I can't teach caring. I can't teach attitude. 
I can't teach optimism. These are things that come hardwired when somebody comes in, whether their parents did it or whatever, right. or their nature, whatever you want to call it. I could teach skills. I could teach processes and systems and train people and get them certifications all day long. So we learned as a company that we hired for attitude and we hired for people who were optimistic and people who had our track record of actually doing things. And we had our own systems and processes. We had a very unique way of doing business. We called it the Maxon's way, which differentiated us. Yeah, but right? it worked. It worked. And it was a higher standard than our competitors in communication, in service, in appearance, and all these things, because we wanted to distinguish ourselves as being the best restoration company in the world. We weren't the biggest. We weren't the cheapest. We were the best. We were the restorers to the rich and famous. We sure. did so famous landmark churches. We were known for certain things. You can't just hope for that. You can't just say we're that and then hope for that to happen. You have to build a process that people understand. So I could teach that all day long. But even in that regard, we all know people who've hired great people with great attitudes and they come to a company with a bad culture or a bad manager. And they're gone. And they burn out and they get disillusioned and they jump to the next company. What happened there? The leader's job, again, if you're too busy in the day-to-day -day business, you're not maintaining those key relationships. You have stakeholders inside your company. The people who move the needle of your business, whether they're their top rainmakers, your best service providers, your best frontline people, your best financial, whatever they are, people need to feel valued. They need to be recognized. People need to understand they're part of something bigger than themselves. I've had the experience of waking up in the morning and not liking the job that I went up to. And it was the worst feeling in the world. I think a lot of people have had that. I think so too. And for me, it was, I hated it at the time, but it was very instructive because I said, when I have a company, I want a company that people wake up in the morning and they say, I can't wait to get to work. It's idealistic, but you know what? If you treat people well, I mean, little things, by not being busy, I could walk around and say, hey, how's your son doing? Whatever happened with that project that you're working on at your house? Those things, it's the soft skills that don't show up in any box score, but they're so important. Somebody needs to do that. And typically it should be the leader or executives or managers in the company. And then in addition, painting a compelling vision for the future that, hey, we're on a mission to make the world a better place, one relationship, one project at a time. That was our mission. Know your story. Know your story. And people have to be able to articulate it. And we simplified our story. We simplified our values. I know Simon Sinek, if you know who he is, yep. his whole thing is about your why. I was at this very first talk he ever gave in my friend's apartment in the East Village. And he has really? this, I swear, <laughs> it was like 20 of us through the entrepreneur organization. And he was friends with our friend and he came and he spoke. Now he has tens of millions of views on YouTube and everything. But it was this whole thing about your why. And it was as powerful then with 20 people in a room as it is now. I went back, I changed our mission from to be the Northeast leading service provider and blah, 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 <laughs> blah, to make the world a better place, one relationship, one project at a time. And that became our mantra. And it just puts it on the ground. Like it's every interaction you have inside your company, outside your company, with your vendors, with your clients, with your customers, whoever they may be, it's one relationship at a time. That's how we made it the world a better place. And one project at a time, we found everything is a project. It's interesting is that, so here you sat with somebody that what they said meant a lot. Yeah, it resonated. It's the right idea at the right time. I think it's important for business owner, a CEO, even an employee to have their minds open 
to listening to people that were successful, that are successful, because their ideas mean something. And too many people, I think, today are stuck in the, I know better. Everybody thinks that they're the smartest and the greatest. And unfortunately, it can be a big detriment on your business success and personal success. You know, look, there are times I can tell you when I was younger, someone said, oh, you should go see this or watch this documentary or this. And I'm like, what do I need to know that for? I don't need but as you get older, you start learning that, you know what, maybe this will help. Maybe this will make me better. So when you talk about helping the world become a better place, to be fair, that's what we try to do with this stuff, enlightening the business world and help people become more successful. And that's why we have somebody like you on the podcast. You're so sweet. I'm a very sweet guy. See, I winked when I said that, I everybody. Know. I didn't really mean it. Your fingers uh, are crossed too. <laughs> my toes too. <laughs> Heads of companies, senior staff, a lot of times they think that they have to micromanage people. How does a boss learn how to trust that things are going to get done, that they don't do it themselves? And from boss, I mean, it can be a manager yeah. all the way up to the top. And know how and what to delegate or when to delegate. Let me take the first part of what you said, because sure. it's super important. The most successful people I know are lifelong learners. And I find that bosses, whether it be managers, supervisors, executives, owners, those that show up as knowers tend to be the less successful group over time. I say, if you're full of yourself, you have no room to learn anything new. And well, you're, you're full. You're full, right, <laughs> exactly. Full. That's I what I mean, right? <laughs> and I find, and I've been around entrepreneurs for 35 years, it's an insecurity, really. And I think even I was subject to it in my 20s. I didn't know what it meant to be the owner of a company or an entrepreneur. So, you know, you think you have to play this role of being like, I'm the boss. I know I'm the smartest guy in the room and I have all the answers. And that will get you only so far. First of all, it turns people off. People don't want to follow people like that. They also want to be trusted. Right. You ask me to do something, let me do it. So in terms of the learning piece of it, it's part of a culture. Personally, and as a company, we had a learning culture in our company. So we were constantly improving. If you think that we're the best thing, you don't learn, you stagnate. And the world is always changing. You have to adapt. Now, one of the things I'll say, I have friends that read 20, 30 business books a year. I'm not a big reader of business books. I find them boring. It takes too long. But I love learning in relationships by verbally. I learn. So you know meet with a lot of people. So know what style of learning. So for me, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of speakers, entrepreneurial speakers. I learn with my ears, not with my eyes. I just know that about myself. So having conversations with people, I could learn very quickly in that setting. So I used to feel bad that I really don't like reading business books. The E-Myth though, that's one you should read. It's like a hundred pages. So if you're going to read one book, if you're not a reader like me, read that book. You that's can get worth it on Amazon. You can get, <laughs> you on, get Amazon. on Amazon. Here, <laughs> Some people do audio books. I don't really do that, but that seems like a great way for people but you have to understand that not only do you not know everything, there's a lot of smart people in the world, but that things are constantly changing. I mean, think about AI. How could that impact your business? If you're keeping your head in the sand, then you're going to miss out on some trends and some important things. And it goes back to me starting that industry affiliate organization. Besides being able to co-market and be able to provide service to my clients outside of the region. So my big national competitors didn't swoop in and get yeah, those relationships. Them, that's it. Besides that, we learned from each other best practices. You'd hear about the whispers, the rumors in the industry before they went public because this guy knows that guy, that guy. So to be open to learning new things and hearing other people's perspectives, it's only going to make you better. And it's going to make you more approachable as a leader because people don't think that you're a know-it-all and a jackass. 
you got to be a little humble. No you have to what be. I mean, there's the idea of a servant leader. A leader's job is not to be the boss and people to serve him. The leader's job is to serve the people who trust that person to be followers of that person. And it's a great responsibility. You're responsible for putting food on people's plates. It's a massive responsibility. It's a big responsibility. So if you serve as a leader, then as you said before about the motivation thing, people want to follow people who are committed to them. Caring is a two-way street. You can't expect employees to care about you and your business if you're treating them like interchangeable parts. I could talk about that for a long time, but there was a second part of your question, which was about the delegation piece. So there's a few pieces to it. And I'm kind of known as being like the master delegator only because I no, was- you had me bring the drinks. Exactly. Thing, I'm drinking your bourbon and <laughs> eating your food right now. But part of it is it's a journey because early on, you think you have to be the guy who knows it all, who does it all, has all the answers. And I understand that. It's like a stereotype. You're starting the company. There's no one else to turn to. Those are the things that get people, let's say as a number, get people to a million dollars in revenue. That's the very same thing that holds people to get to $5 million or $10 million of revenue. Because as a visual, that's the hub and spoke model. You're the hub and everyone is a spoke around you. And every decision has to go through you because you don't trust anybody to make decisions. You're the smartest guy and you know better than everybody else. What I learned the hard way when I expanded and grew two offices at the same time, the complexity of just starting two offices and hiring and office equipment on top of what I was already maxed out at, it almost made me burn out and want to leave the business. So I hired a coach. Again, you don't know what you don't know. But I will get back, I think, to the delegation piece. But he taught me that I needed to delegate. And what I learned is that there's a difference between abdication and delegation. So there's not letting go of everything, like holding it too close. First of all, people don't learn around you. People don't grow. They're just order takers. They just do what you tell them to do. Think about it from that point of view. How long could you do that? Especially in a white collar, real estate, or some other well, professional business. Well, that's it. They feel like they have another parent. Exactly. Go clean your room. Go do this, do that. And do you want order takers working for you? Or no. do you want decision makers, people who could solve problems? And it also traps you in the business. If you're the smartest guy in the room and has to make every decision, you need to be there. So you become trapped in a golden cage of your own making. Did you write that before you came in here? No, no, but, That's pretty uh, good. but I looked at you and I thought about- <laughs> Putting me in putting a cage. Putting you in a cage. <laughs> that was actually very good. I like that. But, yeah, but, but, but continue. Well, yeah. you know, I only know it because I lived in it. It's a terrible place to be. It's like feeling trapped in your own company, but you trap yourself because you don't trust other people. So trust is the essential element of a business. You only operate at the speed of trust. Like caring, trust is a two-way street. If you want people to trust you, you have to trust them. You can't be mistrustful. The people think they're stealing from you, think they're gonna slag a day's work. If you take a day off or something, cats away. If you have those people, they shouldn't be working for you. And on top of that, it's more of making sure that the work gets done a certain way. And right. everybody's always like, I know how to do it. And the truth is someone can do it a different way and it just could be better than the way you exactly. think it is. Sorry to interrupt you, but have you ever been micromanaged? Yeah. At home, I get micromanaged. I know. I, I watch I know, it. It's but painful no. to watch. <laughs> yes, I mean, but, who wants to be micromanaged? Yeah. Nobody wants that. I don't care if you work at Wendy's or if you work at the biggest Fortune 500 company. It is diminishing and it's a dead end job, basically. And it's like, really? I'm a smart person. Like, Give me a chance. Give me a chance. What I found is going back to the e-myth, the company owes it to the staff to have a way of doing business, systems and processes. So I took years building, what's the Maxon's way? How do we 
take a job in? How do we show up on a job? How do we talk to and adjust? All these things, we scripted these things out because I couldn't be there all the time, but I did have something of value that I learned that I wanted to share with people, but I wanted to institutionalize it and have it in a way, have a reference, have something that people could be trained on. It became part of our procedure manual and it was part of our training regimen. So people were indoctrinated into the Maxon's way. And so I didn't have to look over their shoulder. We ran our business with metrics, very importantly. What are the key drivers of our business? And we measured everybody. We gave them feedback at the end of the month. Here's your metrics on those key three to five KPIs. Here's where you stand on your thing relative to what the standards are in the company. You know, you have to set a standard. And then we would rank them against their fellow employees. So they see where they stood. Are you at the top of the team or the bottom of the team? And if somebody was at the bottom of the team, it gave the managers a clue as to what coaching do I need to give this person to be better at? And then it took away their response to say, well, what you're asking me to do is unreasonable. It's unrealistic. Well, right. then why are these else, five why people is doing Why Marie doing so exactly. well? So I built a system of accountability. So people knew where they stood at all times. It wasn't subject to the whim of the supervisor. You know, you're a tough supervisor. You're an easy supervisor. The numbers don't lie. And people kind of self-managed in a way. And we had incentives around those things because sure. it's got to be carrot and stick. You know, you have to give them incentives and you have course, to give them totally. consequences. If you fell below a certain level, you were on a performance improvement program. One of the things that we learned about accountability, very important, I'd love to share this, is accountability is not yelling at people and belittling them and making them feel bad, forcing them to do the right thing. I had a coach that taught me accountability is asking questions and taking timely, appropriate action. So, hey... You didn't hit your numbers. What happened this month? And listen to them. And either you buy it, you think it's a load of crap, and you could have a conversation about what they're telling you. And then you could say, okay, well, here's a course of action that I think we need to take and enlist them. And they agree to it or they don't. Yeah, for a second, I thought you were firing me. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, that, no. that could be the timely no, appropriate action. No, that could be it. It is interesting. And then you wonder, does my company offer the assistance necessary for that individual to be successful. And maybe that time runs out. You do have to figure out where you have to cut bait in a sense or move forward with this person. I love their attitude. I love how hard they work. It's just not happening for them now. Let's see if we can figure out a way to teach them a little bit better and and give them more direction. That's why you need good managers. And using a performance improvement plan, we found that had specific outcomes and specific deadlines. Because I know as an entrepreneur, our optimism, which makes us successful, can also be a blind spot. You like somebody, you think you're rooting for them. Oh, well, you didn't do it this month. Well, maybe you'll do it next month. And then now two years later, this guy is losing you money. Oh, you're just about to turn a corner. You have to set some boundaries and limits. That's true. I know I cut you off there, but I think that's important because I think in every business, somebody always brings in somebody that they know somebody that they're close with. Because look, I think it's human nature. Yeah. And, and look, I've done it. I've done and it. And there are times where I'm like, oh, but he's a good guy or she's a good yeah. person. I want to make sure that we take care of it. It can be a detriment to everybody involved. We had a philosophy and I didn't make it up, but we learned along our journey is hire slow, fire fast. Most companies do exactly the opposite. They hire fast because they don't do it proactively. They do it reactively. Oh, we're so busy. We need some, you know, things are falling through the cracks. We need somebody pronto. And you go for a warm body and then they don't perform. And you're like, well, I don't want to be the bad guy. I hate firing people. You know, he's a nice guy. 
it's the opposite. You got to hire slow so that you don't have to fire fast. And we had a recruiting process that was very robust. Do you have, do you have a lot of turnover or no? No. I had multiple 20, 30-year employees. I think the average term with my company was about 12 to 15 years. My leadership team, it was two people with me 30 years, one with me 15, one with me 14 years. That's terrific. Yeah. I mean, we're similar. It's an incredible amount of employees that we have that have been with us for anywhere from, let's say, five to 14 years. To me, it's a testament to the leader and the owners and to the company because it has to serve two purposes. They need to be happy. They need to feel satisfied. They need to feel like they enjoy what they do. But it's also a testament to them. Well, true. Absolutely. But on the other side, I have to say it has to be a good business. Not every business is a good business. That's true. There's some that aren't profitable. There are some that are very challenging. So if they're doing well and paying their bills and putting money in savings and they enjoy what they do, it's very hard to lose those people. You have to give them a really good reason right. to leave you. Listen, I'm thinking about starting a CB radio business. Oh, yeah. Well, this <laughs> podcast is totally evidence for it's, it's in your it. expertise. <laughs> Breaker one nine. Uh, I think uh, I got think a smoky on my tail. Yeah. You know, by the way, my one of my as far as the You the, might want to speak into the microphone. Oh, I'm sorry, which microphone is that? Is this your podcast or my podcast? I'm I just trying to help out. Thank you. You're doing a wonderful job. Do you think that business leaders, again on any level, should have a coach or a mentor of some sort? Do you think it's necessary or maybe not a formal coach or mentor, but somebody that they can really bounce ideas off of? I think it's essential. I've always had at least one coach or mentor, and you don't know what you don't know. The example I gave you before, when I was in the hub and spoke model, and I was in the middle of every single decision and feeling burnt out and not knowing why, I was a victim of my own success. The more busy, the more decisions, the more stress, the more issues that pop up. And I knew I needed help because I was ready to just quit. I was ready to leave this great business that I loved, but I was really hating it because I hated showing up to work because there's just problems coming at me. It's a wave. It's just a wave. It was just an endless wave. I didn't see a way out. So my friend recommended his coach. His name is Rich Russikoff, bottom line consultants. I'll give him a plug because he was fantastic. And he said, well, you need a leadership team. You've gotten big enough that you need other people to make decisions and help you run the company. I do. And even think about what do I know about a leadership team? And so I said, well, how do I find a leadership team? Right. Is it internal? Is it outside? Right. And we weren't big enough that I could pay huge salaries. In my industry, it was either mom and pop owner operators. You're not going to get the owners to come and work for you. (laughs) Or these national companies that are paying big six-figure salaries. And we were in this middle zone that I couldn't. So he goes, well, if you can't find them, because your local competitors don't even have this structure, like you're bigger than your competitors, they don't even have a management structure, then you have to grow them. So what I did is I looked internally and who are my top performers, who are like the most engaged, involved, intelligent, smart people, and I gave six of them a chance. And over time, two of them just showed that they just didn't have what it took. They didn't have the creativity, they didn't have the vision, they just wanted to do the work. They just wanted to do the job. And it was fine, they had the chance and they went back to be great. And what they were doing. And what yeah, they were exactly. doing. Exactly, sure. But then the other people, one was I hired as a sales coordinator and then she became uh, executive assistant to my COO. Then she became the chief of staff in charge of all hiring, firing HR. And now she's a vice president at the billion dollar first on site. I mean, it's terrific. So she's like the VP of administration. The other th- lesson there is, Spot talent. The leader's job is to identify people who are performing. 
if they're really good performers, they want new challenges. So the tendency is, hey, he's a good administrator. Let's keep him in that role. You know what? One of the key things that retains people, and I'll say retention, is super important. In this day and age, the job market, low unemployment, there's a lot of opportunity out there. Your competitors are paying top dollar because it's hard to find good people. They're trying to poach your people. I'm telling you, they are right now. I get the email. I'm sure you do. <laughs> and you hope that you have employees that are loyal and committed enough that are going to say, hey, so-and-so is reached out, is reached yeah. out this headhunter or whatever. So you need to give people a reason to stay beyond just pay. Like I said, they have to love what they do or at least like what they do, feel like they're being treated well. They have to be part of something big, as I said before. But at the same time, I found the most valuable thing to do was invest in your people. We invested in education and training constantly. We gave it for free. We just gave people. And then I heard a quote that says, well, and I've heard this before. What if I train them? I spend all this money training them and, and they, they leave, leave. And they leave. And my answer was, what if you don't train them and they stay? <laughs> but that happens. That's and a it risk you take anyway. Exactly. And you know what? People appreciate that you are investing in them and it comes back. It's that two-way street of caring, of trust and credibility. It's got to be a two-way street. So if you're investing in them, then they, quote unquote, get invested in you and your business. So development. And then we did extracurricular investment in them. We had something called a wish wall, which was, hey, did you have like bucket list items that you had in your life? Our company wants to help you achieve those things within reason and what we're able to do. Give me an example do. of that. I got to know what Okay. That is. So we were talking about, we had a culture club. So we had a team, a voluntary team in our company that was designated with doing things that grew our culture and made it a magnetic place that attracted people to come to work at and retained people to stay. And I had this idea about helping make people's dreams come true, their wishes. So we came up with this wish wall thing, you know, bucket list. So we were like trying to explain it. I'm like, like yeah, skydiving. Exactly. Right, right, right. So let's say somebody always wanted to skydive. And all of a sudden we're in the meeting and somebody goes, I always wanted to skydive. And the next person's like, I always wanted to skydive too. And from that meeting, eight of us went skydiving. And so that was just like the example, but it happened. And then one guy wanted to ride the dragon, this motorcycle loop in Kentucky or through the Blue Mountains. Right. So we paid for him for flights and a ho whatever it was. It was like a few hundred dollars. And then another guy wanted to do this big f fishing tournament. So we paid for his you entry sponsored fee. It and we it. sponsored it. We did this but thing. But something too that's not very big, but to them, it's, it's, a, it's, huge. it's huge. It's a gesture. I found that business owners have the opportunity to do memorable gestures. People remember gestures. Like one thing, here's a gesture. Would you rather get $100 a week raise or would you rather get a check for $5,000? I want the raise. But most people- Want the $5,000. Now, $100 a week is $5,200. And time value, it's actually more valuable. More valuable. But what's memorable makes a bigger impact when they show up and you get a $5,000 check and they go home at the dinner table, they're like, look, look at this Look check. what happened. Look what they did for and me. And they remember that. They don't remember the $100, the $100 right. a week exactly. becomes part of the wallpaper. So I think owners have an opportunity to make gestures. They should be authentic gestures, like from a place of real recognition and caring, rather than doing it in a kind of like manipulative- Nonchalant. I'm sorry, finish. You no, were no, saying. nonchalant was what I was going to say. Yeah. Exactly. It's funny- I just kidding. I wasn't going to say that. He was definitely going to say that. He wrote down, I see it says nonchalant written down on, 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 on his flip-flop. <laughs> <laughs> did you cheat on this? I did. Um, I'm reading the whole thing right now. Thing. I don't know where this is coming from. Uh, it's very funny. 
I agree with that. I think everybody needs a little thank you every now and then or some motivation or appreciation. To I want to right. cut you off now. Good. I disagree with your comment. They Hell. don't need a little bit of thank you. They need a lot of thank you. A lot you. of thank you. I once saw something in a room of people, and you should try this in your company. I encourage your four listeners to try this too. This five after okay. today. Uh, oh, Jenny is part of that. Yes, your wife yes, is going to be yes. on. No, um, no, your wife is now going <laughs> to listen. You ready? Yes. Ask any room of people in the world, how many people here feel over-recognized and over-appreciated? The answer will be zero. The answer is always zero. So if you think your little appreciation goes a long way, it does. But think of what a lot of appreciation and recognition. How about just the owner saying, hey, you know what? You did a great job on that project. I really appreciate you. You're doing a great, even if there's no money, no trophy. I mean, those things are great. We had trophies, we had awards and all yeah, these things. Yeah, that's a feel good moment. How about a handwritten note from the owner of the company? Hey, you killed it on that project. Keep up the good work. You don't realize people save those things you for know, their lifetime. It's so funny that you say that. It's a big deal for me. For handwritten notes, I always liked handwritten notes. We sent thank yous. I believe in saying thank yous to clients, et cetera, to people. I actually got one from a colleague of mine and I got it like two months ago. It's still sitting on my desk and it was just appreciated the fact that I took him somewhere and, and introduced him to so and so forth. And it was just very thoughtful and it was something that you don't see often. And I saved it. I called him immediately that I got it. I wanted to thank him specifically for taking the time to just put pen to paper. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. I'll say it is, it is the greatest is. thing in the world. But most people, and it's funny, most people don't. It's you know why? Because they can you send know? emails, they're lazy. Because they're busy. <laughs> that make, there you go. I like it. That's exactly the kind of important but not urgent thing that if you're too busy, falls off the table. Those are the things. I've written an article about how important it is for owners of businesses to take time away from their business to take vacations. Now, obviously it's important because you avoid burnout, you could recharge your batteries. And then when you come back, you have a fresh set of eyes. You could look at your business in a non-habitual way. You could actually smell the culture of your company when you walk in the front door. You could actually, oh wow, gee, it seems kind of Well, quiet that's if they're here. in the office. If they're in the office or whatever it is, you just could get a new perspective just by cleansing the palate as it were. But at the same time, it gives you time and space to think and maybe do something different or think differently or s approach a problem in a different way. But having that space and not being so busy also allows you time to do these things that are important, but not urgent, like writing a thank you note. Simple thank you. Simple thank you. And you have no idea how powerful that is. You think that person, when your competitor calls them and says, hey, we'll offer you $10,000 a year more, come they're going to remember that note. They're going to remember that check. They're going to remember that award you gave them. They're going to remember how you asked them about their kid. All these soft skills that really don't show up, but that's the leader's job. The leader's job, I always heard this, leaders get the companies that they deserve, is one quote. <laughs> okay. okay. So if you're mistrustful, if you're suspicious, if you don't take care of people, you're going to get that back in spades. I've also heard that a business is a direct reflection of its owner. And it's funny because our values in Maxon's were my core values, caring, communication, capability. I always forget the seventh dwarf. I always forget the seventh one. I think you were at four. Oh, really? Well, <laughs> counting was never my strong suit. <laughs> but I agree with that. And I love the way that you finished that with, because they're busy. It just, oh, it are you going to edit out everything after that? 
most of this, okay, this entire thing. In fact, just that one line. I don't blame you're busy. you. Listen, I know you're a huge Mets fan. You kind you of have to you, go there. You kind of remind me of Mr. Met. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because I have a big inflated big, head. Giant inflated baseball head. <laughs> I'm not a Mets fan, but where do, you, where do the Mets finish this year? I think they're lucky if they finish ten games over 500. Do they make the playoffs? It doesn't look good. Doesn't look good. I think the Yankees are with them. Unfortunately, I think that's right. Well, listen, they'll have time off. It'll be good. Maybe you can go play baseball with Daryl Strawberry. Well, you know what? (laughs) Again, I think as a leader, it's important that you either get lucky or you get the lesson. I think that makes a lot of sense. So if they didn't get what they wanted this year, they got to learn something from it. Whatever they're doing, something has to change. Whatever they're doing is not getting them the result. I think leaders, as you said, if you're too full of yourself, you can't learn. You got to be able to evaluate do a strength, weakness, opportunity, and threat analysis and see where you stand as an owner, as a business, so you can learn and grow and, yeah. and retool. And it's your job to navigate. Well, it's funny. I brought up the Mets, but, you know, with a smile on my face. But the truth is, it doesn't matter what business it is. Yeah. You know, you do your squat, you do your whatever sort of analysis that you need to do, whether it's whether you're bringing up young players, young people, or educating new employees, et cetera. It's still the same thing and maintaining that work ethic that good energy, that good feel and a successful business. So I think it all it's all related. One important thing with doing, let, let's say, all this that we were just talking about, these off-sites to take your team off and like take a day and actually think about and plan and do all that stuff, awards, company events, a summer party, a winter party, a booze cruise, a happy hour, whatever these things. I think the best way for owners to think about this, I think a lot of them hesitate to do this because they do the math in their head. That's going to cost me That's expensive. Oh, you mean I have to take five people out of the business for the day. So I'm already paying them this. I'm losing this production. It's going to cost me $6,000 to take them offsite for the day. And for what? You have to see all of these things we're talking about are investments that you make in the business. They're not expenses. Taking care of people doing the offsite planning, thinking about the future. These are essential investments that owners need to make in their business. Stop doing the math on the back of the envelope because what you're doing is you're engaged in short-term thinking. Owners, visionaries, entrepreneurs, they need to think in the long-term. And that $6,000 in the term of 10 or 20 years means nothing. But that one insight, that one idea, that one plan that you develop could be life-changing and business-changing for many years to come. I think that's a big statement, and I agree. I'm very glad you perfect, agree. Listen, I think that's the perfect way to end that. I got to say, you know, it's funny. I, I know you for like six, seven, eight years when you kicked me out of your house for staying too late. Listen, I didn't know that people went to bed at like 3 a.m. I'm It was sorry. 4.30, and you put another log on the fire, <laughs> and my family was sleeping. Listen, it was time for you to go. I don't think it was time for me to go. I, I think will, it was, obviously. It was, I didn't, that's I was why very I called upset. Security. <laughs> security. <laughs> Look, Damon, I, I appreciate you coming on, and I certainly value all of your Finsights as well. See what I did there? Oof. See, that's the Finsights. It's branding. So, I love it's it. Brand, we got to keep branding. You're Finsights, differentiating Finsights, yourself. Finsights. No, but I do appreciate it. I think, listen, I learned a lot, and it's, I think it's really helpful. And plus, I got to know you a little bit better, a little bit more about your background on business as well. So I, I appreciate it, and I thank you for that. Also want to thank the listeners. Hope they enjoy the conversation. If they have any questions or feedback, they can reach out to us at finsights at silverfincapital.com. And everybody have a great day. Thanks again, Damon. Thank you, Rich.